James, the brother of Jesus Christ, gives one of the most penetrating descriptions of the tongue found anywhere in Scripture. He says in the third chapter of his letter the following, If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder. So also the tongue is a small member. How great a forest can be set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire. With it we bless the Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. Jesus himself, addressing the Pharisees after being accused of having a demon, said the following, On the day of judgment, when we stand before God, we will give an account for every careless word we speak. So we see that our words matter. And as we continue on in our sermon series on the Ten Commandments, we will see today that the way that we speak about one another matters. What we say about one another is of critical importance to God. He cares about the name and the reputation of his people. Why? Because the people of God reflect the character of God himself. And as he who called us is holy, we also must be holy in all of our conduct, including our speech. So with that in your minds, turn with me to Exodus, 16, or Exodus 20. We're continuing on in our series on the Ten Commandments. Page 61, if you're using one of the proclamation Bibles. You can grab your outline out of the bulletin. You'll see we have three points to cover today. The commandment defined, the commandment fulfilled, and the commandment applied. I'll read Exodus 20, verse 16, the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. The NIV translates it this way. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. So as we look at point one, the commandment defined, we need to first look at the specific content, context in which God gave the Israelites this commandment. As you may recall from Exodus 18, Moses' father-in-law Jethro had met up with Moses after the Israelites left Egypt and observed right away that Moses was a busy man. Day and night, the people of Israel would bring their cases before Moses, matters to be judged. And it was becoming too much for Moses to handle. So Jethro advises Moses to choose judges from among the people who are able to decide the smaller matters and to leave the more significant matters to Moses. So point A, the Israelites establish a justice system. And God made it clear in Exodus 23 that perjury in the courtroom was prohibited. Exodus 23.1, God says to the people, You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit deciding with the many so as to pervert justice. So witnesses in Israel's court of law needed to be truthful. And not only that, God also made it clear that more than one witness was required 
in a court of law. Deuteronomy 19.15 says this, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed. Only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses can a charge be established. So why was more than one witness required? Because eyewitnesses were usually the only form of evidence in a case. As one commentator puts it, there were no audio recordings, videos, fingerprints, or DNA testing. The ancient world didn't have any of that. But they had eyewitnesses. And if someone stood up to accuse a person of wrongdoing in a court of law, and a second person stood up with the same accusation, the life of the accused could be in jeopardy. So given the importance of testimony, more than one witness was required. And given the high stakes involved, the punishment for perjury was severe. In fact, God required that a witness who lied in court receive the same punishment that the alleged crime would have received. Deuteronomy 19.16 says this, If a malicious witness arises, the judges shall inquire diligently. And if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. So you shall purge the evil from your midst, and the rest shall hear and fear and shall, again co- and shall never again commit such evil among you. So if the sentence for the alleged crime was death, the sentence for perjury was also death. God was sending a message to the Israelites. Be careful. Your testimony in court must be absolutely true. So God required that the Israelites tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth in a court of law. God required a fair justice system. Why? Because the God of the Israelites was a just God. And because God was just and fair, the people must also be just and fair. False witnesses undermined God's justice system, which undermined God himself. But as we move to point B, it is important to note that the ninth commandment didn't just require honest testimony in a court of law. It required honest testimony in everyday life. In the life of the community, the people of God were commanded by God to speak truth about one another at all times. So the ninth commandment, number one, prohibited false testimony in everyday life. Leviticus 19.16 says, You shall not go around as a slanderer, saying things that aren't true, among your people. Proverbs 10.18 says, Whoever utters slander is a fool. According to Psalm 14, a fool says in his heart there is no God. So slanderers in God's book are God rejectors. One more, Proverbs 16, 28 notes that a whisperer or a gossip separates close friends. So God makes clear that false testimony, slander, gossip should not be tolerated in the covenant community. The Heidelberg Catechism is also helpful in further explaining the requirements of the ninth commandment. It says, what is required of the ninth commandment? I must never give false testimony against anyone, twist no one's words, 
not gossip or slander, nor condemn or join in condemning anyone rashly or unheard. In court and everywhere else, I must love the truth, speak and confess it honestly, and do whatever I can to defend and promote my neighbor's honor and reputation. So not only does the ninth commandment prohibit false testimony, but it also requires, number two, that the community protect and promote their neighbor's good name at all costs. So speaking well of one another, honoring one another, doing everything in our power to protect, preserve, and promote the good name and reputation of our neighbors, especially when they aren't in the room. Why was God so desirous that the Israelites keep the ninth commandment? Why was it such a big deal to him? Why is it so important that we, the people of God, keep the ninth commandment? We learned a few weeks back that the third commandment, you shall not take the Lord's name in vain, is all about how the people of God represent God. We must represent the name of God well. The ninth commandment is all about how the people of God represent one another. We must represent the name of God's people well. But why? Two primary reasons. First, the people of God are a reflection of God, of his character. And Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie. So he is a God of truth and of justice So his people must be truthful and just. I'm not sure if you're all aware, but our children are a reflection of who we are, of us. They look like us, talk like us, walk like us, act like us most of the time. There are exceptions. In the same way, God's people should look, talk, and act like him. What does it say about our God who does not lie if his people spread lies about one another? Slander one another, gossip about one another. If we are not careful, our actions can taint our God's reputation. And God is very jealous, very protective of his own reputation. So keeping the ninth commandment is important, number one, because we reflect the name character and reputation of God, but number two, it's also important because God cares about his people. He loves his people. He delights in his people. His people are his children. And so, of course, he is going to care very much about the name of his children. Our name represents our character and our reputation, which is valuable to him. Proverbs 22.1 tells us that a good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor is better than silver or gold. So whenever we mishandle the name of our neighbor, especially when they aren't in the room, we can damage their reputation, sometimes permanently. The old adage, sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me is not further from the truth. I think we all know that. Especially in this age of trial by Twitter. God 
loves his people. And he desires that his name and his people's name be protected and preserved at all costs. So we must never slander, gossip, or insult one another. Rather, we are to speak well of one another, highly of one another, always. God will hold us accountable for every careless word we speak, which is exactly what happened with Ahab, the Israelite king, which we'll see now. So point one, the commandment defined. Now point two, the commandment fulfilled. For that, please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Kings 21. It's page 303 if you're using one of the proclamation Bibles. We'll look at how King Ahab failed to keep the ninth commandment. A little background here as you're turning. The people of God now occupy the promised land, but have split into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom Israel and the southern kingdom Judah. And after the split, the Old Testament records the accounts of wicked king after wicked king, unworthy of sitting on the throne, ruling the people of God. So we come to Ahab, one of the kings of the people of Israel. I want us to be clear here before we jump into the details. Ahab is the king. He's the number one guy. He's God's divinely appointed ruler of his people. You think that God held his people to a high standard? God held the king to a higher standard. In fact, we learned a couple of weeks back that the king of Israel was required to write out for himself in a book, a copy of the entire law. Why? Because if the king was going to rule over God's people, he better know and more importantly keep the law. So let's go to 1 Kings 21. We'll see how this goes. We see Ahab demanding that Naboth, his neighbor, sell him his vineyard. Ahab says to Naboth, this is verse 2. Give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house. Naboth refuses to sell. Why? Because the law, which the king would have known, forbid a man from selling his property outside the family. Naboth knew this. He was a righteous man who knew the law. So Ahab is rejected, and while he's pouting, his wicked wife Jezebel takes matters into her own hands. She decides to frame Naboth. We'll pick it up in verse 8. So she, Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, And she sent the letters to the elders and the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. And she wrote in the letters, Proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and and set two worthless men opposite him and let them bring a charge against him, saying, You have cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. Down to verse 13. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite him 
And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of God's people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. It doesn't get much uglier than this, does it? This is malicious. This is vicious. This is the king, God's divinely appointed man, who is supposed to know and uphold the law. And he deliberately breaks it in multiple ways. First, allowing his wife to set up false witnesses, then murdering a righteous man who can't even stand up for himself. And finally, he steals his property. This is the king of Israel. All of this for a small piece of property because it was near the king's house. Let's pause for a minute and just think about what must have been going on in Ahab's heart. To go to such lengths to do what he did. Ahab's heart was wicked. He was greedy, selfish, malicious, willing to use his power to crush this defenseless man. Proverbs 25:18 says this. A man who bears false witness against his neighbor is like a war club or a sword or a sharp arrow, which makes total sense. When you see the damage that can be inflicted, Ahab's slanderous heart was evil to its core. We saw earlier that God requires that justice be served for one who commits perjury. Many of you know how, the life, how life ends for Ahab and Jezebel. Both are eventually killed, and dogs lick up their blood, as was pronounced by the word of the Lord through the prophet Elijah. And while this is one of the more blatant, malicious examples in the Old Testament of God's people bearing false witness, we see in Isaiah 59, it is not the only example. God's people fail over and over again to keep the ninth commandment. So as we move on to point two, just listen to Isaiah 59, starting in verse two. Your iniquities, O Israel, this is God speaking to Israel through the prophet Isaiah, have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly, no one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies, they conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. And then down to verse 13 speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. So the people of Israel break the ninth commandment repeatedly 
bearing false witness, speaking lies, muttering wickedness, suing one another unjustly, slandering one another. And just like Ahab, who was judged by God for framing Naboth, the Israelites are ultimately judged by God at the hands of the Assyrians and the Babylonians. We see the imagery in Isaiah 7. God merely whistles. Two countries come. Two armies. The Israelites are wiped out by their enemies. Many die. Those remaining are taken as prisoners of war into exile. All for disobeying the Lord's commandments. All for not upholding the name of Yahweh as holy. Before we move on, I just want to ask this question. Outside of Christ, are we really any better off today? Romans 1 says that those who do not see fit to acknowledge God are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. So God's word is very clear. Outside of Christ, we are no better off than the Israelites. See, we have a heart problem. Our hearts are sick. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? We are born with hearts that are full of evil, malice, slander, envy, and deceit. Our tongues light people up, like it says in James 3. So we need to cry out, like the prophet Isaiah, standing in the very presence of the Most High God. Woe are we. We are a people of unclean lips, and we dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. There is only one solution to this predicament we are in, isn't there? We need a savior. Israel desperately needed a savior, and we desperately need a savior today. One who can take our depraved, slanderous, deceitful hearts of stone and turn them into hearts of flesh. So as we move to 2B, fulfilled in Christ, I want us to see how the Lord Jesus Christ perfectly fulfills the ninth commandment, both in his life by perfectly keeping it and in his death by taking on the penalty required by the law for lawbreakers like us, slanderers, gossips, liars. So first, let's look at how he fulfilled the law during his life, specifically by how he witnessed to the truth. And for this, we're going to take a quick trip 
through the Gospel of Mark. Feel free to open your Bibles and follow along, or you can just listen. You can write the passages down and go back later if you want to look them up. So first we see, number one, that Jesus always spoke the truth about his enemies. He wasn't afraid to take them on. He says in Mark 7, 6, addressing the Pharisees, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, you hypocrites, as it is written, You honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from me. Now, just to be clear here, Jesus' description of the Pharisees is not sinful. Jesus never sinned. But he wasn't afraid to rebuke people that needed to be rebuked. Jesus always spoke the truth, even to his enemies. Number two, Jesus spoke truth about the kingdom of God, what, must one, do, what one must do to inherit eternal life. We see in Mark 10, 14, Jesus says to the children, let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belong the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child cannot enter it. So Jesus testified to the truth about the kingdom of God, and he does it tirelessly, day after day, town after town, synagogue after synagogue. He shares the gospel of truth, the message of truth, saying, humble yourselves so that you too can enter the kingdom of God. So number one, he spoke truth about his enemies. Number two, he spoke truth about the kingdom of God. Number three, he spoke truth about his ministry, about who he was and what he had come to do. Mark 10, 45. Many of you know this verse. Jesus says, For even the Son of Man, he's referring to himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So he's very clear. I came for two purposes, to serve and to give my life as a ransom for sinners, for liars, for slanderers like us. Jesus spoke truth about who he was and what he had come to do. And finally, number four, Jesus spoke truth about his own death. We see in Mark 10, 33, he tells his disciples, the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. But after three days, he will rise. And that's exactly what happened after being betrayed by Judas for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus is put in front of the Jewish high priest and other members of the Sanhedrin. And Mark 14, 55 says, Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But they found none. For many bore false witness against him saying, I heard him say, I will destroy the temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this, get this, their testimony did not agree. 
Are you following this? They have nothing on him. Nothing. He had spoken the truth his entire life. So finally, they condemn him for blasphemy. For saying ironically that he is the Christ, which was true. So he's put in front of Pilate. And at the end of the trial, Jesus says to Pilate, get this, John 18, 37. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. What happens next? Pilate declares him innocent. He tells the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But it's too late. The crowd is in a frenzy. And Jesus is delivered over to the people to be crucified. So Jesus, his whole life, all the way up to the point of his death, never wavered from the truth. He always bore witness to the truth. So Jesus, number one, fulfilled the law by keeping the ninth commandment perfectly during his life. And number two, he fulfilled the law by laying down his life for those who could not keep the law on their own. By the way, that's all of us. Here's the kicker. Even at the end of his life, he's about to die. Is the crowds, the Jewish leaders, the Gentiles, everyone hurl insults at this man. They slander this man. They mock this man. This perfectly innocent man. He never reacts. He never responds. He never slanders. He never reviles in return. Like a sheep being led to the slaughter, he opened not his mouth. First Peter 2 says, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sin in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now comes my favorite sentence, one of them in the entire Bible. By his wounds, we have been healed. So he lays down his life, bearing our sin, Dying in the place of sinners like us. Liars, slanderers, and gossips like you and me. Fulfilling the law perfectly even in his death. 
If you are new here this morning, perhaps you're hearing things that are new to you. Perhaps you've been coming for a long time, but you continue to reject the good news of the gospel, the truth about Jesus, perhaps more full of malice and slander and deceit in your heart than you would care to admit. The Bible says this, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. You can't keep the law perfectly if you tried. You are condemned under the law. You deserve to be judged. You fail every single day and you need a savior whether you know it or not. I want to tell you something this morning. The death of Jesus Christ was no ordinary death. You see, a transaction occurred. You choose to believe in him, trust him, embrace him as your Lord and Savior. He takes your sin on himself. He is judged for your sin, for the sin that you committed. He dies in your place. And guess what you get? You receive his perfect righteousness. His perfect righteousness, fulfilling the law perfectly, is credited to you. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, He became sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I urge you this morning, believe in him, trust him, embrace him as your resurrected Lord and Savior. And for you, dear believer, where do we go from here? Well, I would say, first of all, rejoice in the good work that Christ has done on your behalf. Rejoice in the fact that Jesus did what you could never do. Rejoice in the fact that he fulfilled the law perfectly. And because of this, this is Romans 8, 4, the righteous requirement of the law is now fulfilled in you. You get his perfect righteousness. Grab a hold of the significance of that. You break the law all the time, even still, as a believer. And yet, because Jesus kept it perfectly and died on your behalf, by faith in him, it is as if you had kept the law perfectly. You're free from the penalty of your sin. Glory in that this morning. 
And you now have the ability to live totally differently than you ever could live on your own. Did you catch what 1 Peter 2 said? Christ bore your sins in his body on the tree so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness. So his death was fully and completely effective, not only in saving you from the penalty of sin, but in allowing you to have power over your sin. I think we hear that statement a lot here as a church at Christ's proclamation. You have power over your sin. I don't think we really believe it. I don't think we, I know I, don't let that sink in the way that it should. Let it sink in this morning. The sins that you struggle with, perhaps slandering, gossip, you never have to struggle with in the same way again. Ever. It has no power. Sin has no power over you. Christ crushed it crushed it on your behalf. Let's get a hold of that truth this morning. The old is gone. The new has come. But we still fight remaining sin, don't we? It's still there. So ways we can continue to fight, let's move on to point three, commandment applied. First, we need to diagnose our own hearts. Again, Matthew 12, 34, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what we say about others starts with what's in our hearts. Heart diagnosis isn't easy. It's not easy for me. So how do we grow in this? Here's a suggestion. When you're tempted to say something derogatory, about a brother or sister in Christ who isn't in the room, ask yourself why. Like, what is my inclination here? What is my motivation? Perhaps you're a little bit like Ahab, malicious, selfish, all about you, looking for a way to intentionally badmouth someone. You need to deal with that. You need to repent. Or perhaps you just have a grudge against someone. Maybe they've wronged you, so you're angry with them, or you're bitter. The Bible says, Jesus says, Matthew 5 says, you need to go and be reconciled with your brother or sister. Or perhaps you're just proud. I fall into this. We simply have a habit of just wanting to make ourselves look good, subconsciously even. So we say things about others to put them down so that we look better without even thinking about it. We think we know how to handle situations better than others. Our kids, our ministry, our money, our time. So we are negligent in our speech, subconsciously harming the good name, character, and reputation of others in the church. So we need to be a people doing heart work, which is hard work, but it's worth it. Second, let's be a people who do everything we can to build one another up. 
speaking well of one another, especially when they are not in the room, in the conversation, whether online or in person. We must do everything we can to protect and promote our neighbor's good name. Ephesians 4.29 says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Jonathan Edwards wrote over 70 resolutions, most by the age of 19, decisions he had made about how he was going to conduct his life. One of his resolutions says the following, get this, resolved never to say anything at all against anybody, but only what is perfectly agreeable to the highest degree of Christian honor and of love to mankind and agreeable to the lowest humility and sense of my own faults and failings and agreeable to the golden rule, often when I have said anything against anyone, to bring it to and try it strictly by the test of this resolution. What a great resolution this would be for us, certainly for me, to never say anything at all against anyone. That's Ephesians 4 language. But to protect and promote one another's good name speaking well of one another. So the litmus test should usually be, would I say this if this person were standing here right now? I keep saying protecting and promoting. What does it look like to protect the good name of a brother or sister? Well, someone approaches you or they text you about someone else. We need to be ready to stand up for that person, especially if they're being maligned. This can be hard. This takes courage, especially if there are multiple people in on the conversation. But we need to be able to say, hang on a minute, time out. Should we be speaking this way about this person? There are times where we need to, in confidence, have a hard conversation about someone else. And we must use good judgment in those situations. But let's be intentional. Let's be very careful here. Let's do everything we can to protect the good name, the reputation of our brothers and sisters. Let's love one another. Why is it so important that we get this right as a church? Why must we work hard to speak well of one another all the time? We are the body of Christ. We are members one of another. You would never intentionally cut off your own toes or your own fingers. That's what it's like when we tear down instead of building up. So as the spiritual body of Christ... We must be unified. We must show our love for one another, our care for one another, in how we speak about one another. We must be holy as Christ is holy. Remember what I said earlier. The people of God must reflect the character of God. And 
we must love and care for one another in the same way that Christ loves and cares for us. So let's represent our Savior well by representing one another well. And remember, we have been given the power as new creatures in Christ to grow, to excel in building one another up. And when we do this well, we will be a people who testify to the truth. Last point. In both our actions and our words, we will be noticed by a watching world. We will be a light in a world filled with darkness. Do you understand how countercultural Ephesians 4 behavior is? When we do this well, we will be as a church an aroma of life to those who are being saved and an aroma of death to those who are perishing. Everyone's watching. The town of Windsor is watching. The Shad Derby, they're watching. People are watching us. When we speak well of one another, love one another, as it says in Acts 17.32, some will mock, they may slander or revile us, just as they did Christ. That's okay. But others will want to hear us again. And when they approach us, we must, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in us. That is being a true witness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's be a people who are resolved to do the difficult heart work, building one another up and testifying to our Savior, the truth, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for us. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for your word this morning. We know it is your word. And we thank you for your son who lived a perfect life and died for sinners like us so that we might have his perfect righteousness. Father, would you grow us in being a church that loves you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we would represent you well and that we would love one another, building one another up. Father, we just want to be more like Christ. That's what we want. In Jesus' name.